Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome back to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Iyer. And uh, I'm guessing that a lot of you are in a, a bit of a mood today. I, I can tell you that I think Prashant and I are a little more fired up uh, than normal based on some of our pre-show text conversations. So we're just going to get into the news story of the day. We'll circle back for, uh, on the game because one item of news from this weekend certainly uh, kind of rose above the, the gameplay. And that, of course, was Anthony Mantha being scratched on Sunday against the Panthers. Now, the Red Wings get their first win of the season in this game, uh, which certainly maybe adds a, a little layer of complication that we'll touch on later on. But uh, I, I think Mantha's absence kind of overshadowed the, the whole game in, in, in a large sense for me, because you're, you're seeing this team with without a player that it just made the uh, longest signed uh, highest salary contract Steve Eiserman has given out since becoming GM and already 13 games into the season, he has now been healthy scratched. Yeah. I mean, especially like the, the frustrating part with it was the way that it got framed. It was, we, he's not coming out for warmups and Jeff Blaschel will tell you after the game. And so of course uh, that led to everyone needing to recklessly speculate uh, for about three hours during the game, which was very much entertaining. However, uh, all it led to was trade proposals, injury stuff. He's on the COVID list. Uh, he got scratched because he deserved to be scratched because he's been terrible. And so, you know, honestly, it just like it was probably the worst way that could get set up, and and ultimately overshadowed what was a really exciting Red Wings game. And then you know, come to find out, Max, that you know, as you asked the question in the the post game presser, that yes, he was in fact a healthy scratch. And so, of course, that's led to another 24 hours of reckless speculation. So I think I probably picked about 10 fights with people just, uh, you know, getting agitated about this. But it's it's a, it's just, it doesn't make any sense, but it is what it is. And so, you know, I guess I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on, I guess, one, was it warranted? And, and, and two, why do, if it was warranted, you know, why did it need to happen? Well, there's a lot of ways to to look at that. I mean, was it warranted? I think everyone out there knows that Anthony Mantha's play to this point this season has not been up to the Red Wing standard for him. I, I don't think it's been up to his standards for himself. I certainly don't think it's been up to fan standards for him or up to kind of the, the in, implicit standards of his new contract. And so from that standpoint, um, I can see an argument for, you know, Mantha hasn't uh, – has certainly hasn't insulated himself from something like this um, at the same time. And, 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 you know, coaches use this stuff as, as a tool, right? So, so if you're talking about, it, it's not like, I think, I mean, Anthony Mantha is one of the Red Wings um, top six forwards on the ice, even when he's not good. Like even when he's off, he's still been, uh, he's still one of their very few players who can make something happen out of nothing. He can create a breakaway in the defensive zone and finish it. He can pick up a loose puck at a weird angle in the offensive zone. And even if he's standing still, he has the best shot on the team and can put it in the back of the net. So from that standpoint, of course, he's one of their 12 best players. And on any given day, that's going to be true, um, you know, with some room to spare. Now, is it warranted as a developmental tactic? I think that's the only option remaining for, for why this could have been. Because, again, there is no argument he's not one of their 12 best forwards on any given day, no matter what's going on. So I'm taking it like that. Jeff Blashill declined to elaborate on anything beyond uh, – the fact that he was healthy and he was scratched. So uh, we don't have a ton more to go on. And and that's really the only thing I'm left with. And, I, you know, I'm split on a little bit what to make of it. On one hand, this is not uh, a common thing that you see a player who is in his prime, age 26, uh, one of the higher paid players on the team going through something like this where there's still these kind of scratches happening. 
And unless there's something that we don't know going on behind the scenes, and and that could be anything, I'm I'm left to look back at a comment that Jeff Blaschel made earlier last week, which was about as much as the offensive output is still there or or is happening. I mean, Mantha at at one point had scored three goals in three straight games at at one point um, last week. It's just not the well-rounded game they're looking to see from him. That's what leads me to think that this is a developmental decision. And while I while it is uncommon for a player of Mantha's stature, it's also not completely unheard of. This happened to Travis Konechny last week, too. Konechny at that time was a point-per-game player for the Flyers, and Elaine Vigneault scratches him and uh, basically says his five-on-five game isn't good enough, um, you know, e- even with the offensive output. I don't think that changes. It didn't change Travis Konechny's kind of standing in, in, in the Flyers organization in my mind, and that is kind of where I land on this for Mantha. I, I kind of don't think it's an end-of-the-world, end-of-days deal, but it's certainly big news. And so that's where I think it, it merits this attention because as much as I think this is something that, uh, you know, that does occasionally happen, it, it's still very unusual that it happens to to a player uh, of, of this caliber, whether that be Mantha or Konechny. Yeah, I mean, that, that's totally right. And I think, you know, contrasting the Konechny situation, I think Vigneault did a much better job of kind of communicating that and kind of alleviating some of the concerns of the fan base. I think he came out and said, Konechny's one of our three best forwards. He's doing some things right, but the five-on-five plays just not where they need it to be for Travis Konechny. And that's why he's going to scratch. They talked about it, and they're going to move forward from it. And like that, that information comes out. And I suspect it's the exact same situation for Anthony Mantha. I mean, you look at his stats, and Max, you're absolutely right. It, he's not where he was last year. Um, he's not where we know he can be just by what he's achieved. But at the end of the day, he's still one of Detroit's top three forwards when everybody is healthy and arguably their most talented forward when everybody is healthy. And so that doesn't change with a scratch. But you've seen kind of this massive reaction and almost backlash to he's a lazy hockey player, he doesn't want it, he's not committed. And, and that's the kind of commentary that really drives me nuts because, number one, like you said, Max, we don't have all the information. We don't know what is going on. Uh, we don't know if there are more things to this or if it is as simple and cut and dry as a Travis Konechny situation. And, again, look at the Konechny situation. He is a top three player on the Flyers. They want more from him. That's great. We talked about it on the last show. Hockey coaches tend to take away minutes as their means of communicating a message, and this is – the most extreme example of that. But I I think the frustrating part for me is, number one, Mantha hasn't been that bad. He's just not at his level. He can't control the fact that goalies are stopping 86% of the shots when he's on the ice. That's awful. I mean, you're not going to have good numbers whatsoever when your goaltenders are saving 86% of the shots. And in fact, if you look at the quality of shots that have occurred with Mantha on the ice, the goaltenders have given up nearly six goals above ex- expectation with Mantha on the ice, and, and that's just mind-boggling. Like that's an extra six goals that shouldn't be in the net if you got literally average goaltending uh, based on the quality of shots that you were dealing with there. So I think that's another big thing because goals tend to stick out as red flags. Uh, so so that's kind of just the, the really frustrating part is to see people jump to this He's lazy, he's not trying, he's not committed. I think we sometimes forget that consistency with talent is what makes the truly elite players. That's what makes, you know, the Michael Jordans of the NBA. I mean, there's a great Steve Kerr quote from when the Chicago Bulls went 72 and 10, where he said, there were some nights other guys didn't have it, but Michael was not going to let us lose. That's that kind of quality that you want to see. And I think sometimes fans identify with effort more than they do with talent when it comes to kind of judging these players. And I'll give you an example. Luke Lindenning's a fan favorite because on every shift, you can see him busting his butt. Luke Lindenning does not have the talent of Anthony Mantha, but he can make up for what he can with just pure, unadulterated effort. Dylan Larkin's the same way. Dylan Larkin was not a highly touted prospect. Yes, he went 15th overall. But a lot of people didn't necessarily see the offensive upside with him. But he's a guy who works his butt off and can close some of that gap. And so that's where I think a lot of the frustration comes from Anthony Mantha because he's the most purely talented player on this team. But being able to do that consistently 
is what separates the guys from that Mantha Larkin tier from the, the Crosbys, the Ovechkins, and the guys who are able to consistently do that night in and night out. And I think some people just attribute it to, well, why don't you want it more? When in reality, that consistency, the ability to make randomness work in your favor is a skill. It is not something that every player can just simply want more of and have that go their way. You know, as you talk about consistency, it really reminds me of something uh, I heard Steve Eiserman say back on the day that Dylan Larkin was named captain about Nick Lidstrom. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of things about Nick Lidstrom that are exceptional and that, you know, are, are worthy of, of, you know, praise beyond what, you know, we're going to go into on this show or whatever. But the thing that Eisman mentioned on that day was that, you know, Nick was there every single day and you knew that he was going to give you you know, something every single day. And it was, it was like clockwork, right? Like, you know, that, that was the thing that he felt the need to point out about Lidstrom, um, you know, on this day that there was a lot of talk about the, the, the past captains and, and leaders and, and, and whatnot on the Red Wings. And, you know, as you talk about Jordan that way, it reminded me of Lidstrom. And, and, and it's a reminder that, you know, as much as someone like Luke Glendening doing that, I, I do admire it. That, as a reporter, that's something I admire, someone who can bring it every day because Lord knows uh, I've got slow days and slow weeks and slow months uh, in my not too recent history at work, you know, where I'm just not, uh, I'm not producing it at the level I know I can in, in, in many capacities. And so it's something I admire in, in people of all uh, professions, and that certainly includes sports. So um, I identify with that out of the fan base. My only issue I take is that I think there's there's the observable and then there's the conjecture. And, and you're getting at this in, in your point, too, is that the observable thing that I see in Anthony Mantha is that, no, he doesn't look as engaged in the play. And I think a lot of that comes from the trait that is most obvious with a player that big, which is and, and it's something that is, frankly, a constant discussion around Anthony Mantha and has been in my entire time on the beat. Um, kind of how much he's moving his feet and skating, right? That's the observable. And I don't have a problem with people pointing that out. It's a fact. W- what I question is speculating on the reason behind that observable fact. Like, and I, I won't do it. I'm not going to go down that road because I, I don't like, I don't like that. I don't like that approach to, um, you know, sports analysis or, or whatever you want to call it. It, it feels armed beyond armchair quarterbacking. It's not just second guessing a lineup decision. You're, you're kind of calling into question, you know, ultimately the, the character and the integrity of someone who you don't really know what the deal is. You can say, yes, it, it, he's not moving his feet. That's a fact. But you know, the, the second you start to get into, is it work ethic? Is it this inherent trait, whatever? Um, I frankly abstain from that. And I, I don't think it's fair to do to somebody unless you get someone talking about, this is what I feel the problem with this player is, or this is what I feel like the problem with myself is, is I don't this or that. Right. But I'm not going to put that on somebody because I don't know that it's fair to extrapolate on the observable with, with those speculations on, on kind of these more underlying things that frankly, you know, you can't identify from your couch. You might think you can identify effort from your couch, but I, I don't think you can. Like, I don't know if you know how much someone's efforting from, um, how much observable kind of skating is going in. As much as that might sound like semantics, do you kind of get what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it, right? I, I, it's, it's your people are labeling this as laziness, lack of effort, no work ethic, things like that. When in reality, I think you have to step back and realize, number one, hockey is very difficult to analyze because instead of, you know, a sport like basketball or baseball or even football to a certain extent where you have these guys on the field or on the uh, on the um, you know court uh, for extended stretches of time where you can maybe measure more things, you can see more things, you can observe things. These guys come on the ice for 40 seconds and come off. That's effectively two rushes, either one direction or another. Depending on when they're coming on, their team may have the puck, they may not have the puck. It may be a change coming back as your team's transitioning to defense. And you spend your entire 40 seconds chasing for the puck. Uh, and, and so when you have a lot of those 40-second sequences and you're maybe a top-line player and being slated to play tougher matchups, you're going against tougher opponents, it is a challenge over time to eventually tilt that luck in your favor. And I think people uh, take that for granted. And it kind of I'll draw back to what I was saying earlier about talent and effort. Um, when, when people see raw talent, 
you go, man, I want more of that. I want to see more of that. Give me more of that because I can identify that that is unbelievable. You know, when we watched Mantha last year score four goals against the Dallas Stars in that game, he was a man possessed. It was just, you were in awe of what he was able to do. However, again, it's the ability to consistently turn those that randomness that is associated with hockey, the puck luck you need, the ability to bring the best out of you when you don't, when you aren't feeling your best. That those are all actually qualities of what makes someone truly, truly elite. And it's okay not to be there. There are people that are immensely talented that maybe don't find that way to get that level of consistency, whether it's puck luck, whether it's other circumstances, things like that. And I think people just have to be okay with that. Like you see the talent and you just want more and you're attributing it to a lack of effort or laziness when in reality there's so much that goes into that. And this is the same stuff that led to people criticizing Slava Kozlov in the playoffs in the 90s, led to people criticizing Datsuk early in his career because he didn't score a lot in the playoffs and they said he was too soft to play in the playoffs. He was too lazy because you would see guys like Zetterberg finding ways to score. You know, it led to people criticizing Johan Franzen for a majority of his career. You know, led to people criticizing Yuri Hudler for a majority of his career in Detroit. This is the same vicious cycle, and we're here again with just a different guy. You have to stop doing this and accept that the guy is very talented, he's a very good player, but he may not have the elite quality that drives him into the very elite tier, and you have to accept that without just calling him lazy and bashing him for not trying or having no work ethic. I mean, this is a guy who's played hockey for 20-plus years in his career. You think he's not trying out there? You think he doesn't want to win? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Why are, we, why are you just going to say that, uh, you know, from, from our couches here and make that call? And then, you know, kind of the cherry on top is, oh, by the way, this is a pandemic. These guys have a very different situation now when they're going on the roads. They're totally isolated, there's none of the same camaraderie that existed. I think Mantha himself talked about how tough it was going to be to do this, but it would be necessary in order to play these games. And so there's just so much layered into this. And, and it, right now it's resulting in criticism of just being lazy, and that's got to stop. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. And, you know, I, I also, to your point about home road, I, I think I was looking at Anthony Mantha's home road splits uh, earlier today. I think it's like, I think he's at five points at home, two on the road. I think it's six games of each, and uh, that certainly, I believe, would uh, would would speak to maybe just a little bit of evidence toward that point. Although it's still a little early to to say anything too concretely uh, on that note, but nevertheless, um, the other thing I wanted to make the point of is I think there's a little bit of I don't know if this I don't know if this is called recency bias or or there's some I'm sure there's a term for it. You'll probably know it more than I would, but when something kind of bubbles to a to a contention point, I think it can be very easy to look back at it and say, okay, we got this 12 game sample. The overall trend over that 12 games is that, you know, I think it's fair to say that Mantha's battle level hasn't been what we saw on most nights last year. I mean, you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I think, I think it's totally fair to say number one, the results aren't where they were last year. And number two, when you just visually watch them, you know, you maybe don't see some of the stuff you saw last year that allowed him to be so successful. And I, I think this is a sport where we talk a lot about compete level and and praise it. And I think by the same token, it's fair to say, I don't think Mantha's compete level in this year or battle level has looked on the same level that we saw it in the past. But I don't think that means he's not competing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's exactly, yeah, it, that's it. It's just, it's not that he's not competing, but there is something there to it and that to me says that it's not an intrinsic trait because we've seen it higher like we, the, the, you know there, there may be things to this Mantha's talked about confidence uh, at one point earlier this year and I, I wonder about that and maybe we'll touch on that in a second but I really feel like when you look at the overall trend of this season he's not 12 games in and hasn't had a good game yet he's 12 games in and I think he's had more games where he looked uh not at the level that he was at last year or even some games bad outright um, then he has games where he's looked at the level of, of last year, which has been very few or good. And and on that note, I will read you a quote from literally one week ago from, from Jeff Blaschel. Um, so this is, I think this was last Tuesday, maybe even, so less than a week ago. So when Anthony's playing at a level he's capable of playing at, he doesn't need to be on a line with anybody. He can carry a line on his own. 
That's one of the things about Anthony. If you look at him statistically, he's been one of the guys whose statistics have never dropped off when he hasn't been on Dylan Larkin's line. His statistics have still remained really solid where a lot of guys statistics have dropped off. So playing him on a different line, we don't think will hurt his offense if he's playing at the level he's capable of playing at. And there's, he talked about some matchup stuff. And then he said, I think Anthony skated way better over the weekend. And that was against Florida last weekend. I think he's still coming in some areas, but I thought he skated overall way better. I thought the start of the game last Sunday, he was excellent. He was really moving his feet. And when he does that, he's really, really good player. I think Anthony's a guy that when his confidence, when he's feeling real good about himself, he plays great hockey. So hopefully he can build on the weekend. That was a week ago. So if there's a narrative that this whole season has been a disaster, it, it does conveniently gloss over stuff like that where he says he was way better against Florida uh, and in, in his skating and the start of his game last Sunday was excellent. I mean, these are real things that happened and they're data points that are just going to get washed away because the overall trend has been not that this year, right? And so um, that's the other, that's just the other point that I wanted to kind of make as, as we get into this conversation is that it, it's... I do think it's fair to call this kind of a 12-game slump because it's been the overall trend for about 12 games, even if there's a four-game point streak mixed in there, a three-game goal streak mixed in there. It has been the overall trend that through these first 12 games. Uh, it, it's been more down than up. But I also think part of that has to do with it being the first 12 games and that if this were coming in games, I don't know, 31 through 43 I don't know if we're calling it a 12-game slump or if we're calling it kind of two four-game slumps or something. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, I mean, you know, if it happens kind of in the middle of the season, I think it's a little bit easier to to fall back on data that you have from prior. I think, obviously, with it being the very start, the Wings having not played in, in months, you know, people want to really jump on that and kind of analyze it at a higher level. Yeah, I think that's fair. And so, you know, I don't want to spend the whole show on this, and, and certainly I – recognize that, you know, the reason that I think you and I are are wanting to spend a lot of time on this is because, uh, well, first of all, when I tweeted that he was a healthy scratch, my mentions were flooded with a lot of people wanting to give an opinion on that. Um, and I think you had experienced the same and maybe uh, kind of fought the wars a little more on that throughout the day uh, yesterday and today. So I think we just kind of wanted to, to get a, a better uh, overall thought out there than we're really ever going to be able to, to put out in 180 characters. Do you want to put a bow on this? Do you have anything else you want to say or, or something to wrap it all up? Yeah, I mean, the bow on this is I think Anthony Manthon is going to come back. And honestly, as soon as the Red Wings power play regresses a little bit, you're going to start seeing the point totals there that a lot of people tend to, to tend to hang on. And you know what? You've seen these kind of short periods of, of slumps from Anthony Manthon in the past. He always rebounds in a big way. I would not be surprised if he has a monster game at some point you know, in the next week or so. So it's just this guy's too talented to stay down too long. And, and I think people just need to lay off of him. I think that's very fair. And, and ultimately, I, I think, you know, there is a uh, there's a point that it's certainly reasonable to be critical of, of Anthony Mantha's play so far this year. He hasn't been what they need him to be. I mean, that's just a stone cold fact. And it comes right after they made him uh, the player who is currently under contract the longest for this franchise. I think it's fair to have really high standards for that. It's just there's a there is a line in questioning kind of uh, guys' personal characteristics, and, and in this we're talking about their how much they they care or how much they're trying. That I personally am not going to cross, and and would discourage people from from crossing because I think it goes one step further than than is fair to the the player or the person um, who, in my experience, in almost every instance, really really does care, and I promise you they want the answer much more than you do. Yeah. I, well, very well said. All right. Uh, let's just, let's, let's end that there. Then we'll, we'll pivot into the game, which uh, it is kind of a shame that uh, this became the dominant storyline after that game, because for the first time in at least two weeks, maybe three weeks, the Red Wings had quite a lot of reasons to be very happy after that game. I, I didn't think it was even necessarily there. I thought they were quite good. The previous game against Tampa, for example, and, um, certainly they lose that one three to one, but, uh, in this one, the Red Wings play Florida to a very tight game. And this time they get the bounces. They get a Giovanni Smith, Gordy Howe hat trick. They get Thomas Grice's first win of a Red Wing, uh, win as a Red Wing, breaking your favorite stat that it had been 460 some days since a goalie not named Jonathan Bernier had won a, a game in net for the Red Wings. These are, yeah, and, and an eight game losing streak. These are all things that should have been, uh, reasons for, for a lot of positivity. Yeah, I mean, that was a heck of a game. I think when you watched it, 
at times it didn't feel particularly close. Like, you know, it was close on the scoreboard in that sense, but Florida mounted absolutely nothing of substance uh, for the better part of two periods. It opened up a little bit more, I think, in the third period. But, you know, in a game, and, and we talked about this when we talked about the Florida series before that, Detroit really owned Florida at five on five uh, in both of those games. In fact, in the previous two uh, Florida games, their five on five expected goals four percentage was 64% and 51%. They just lost because they couldn't control special teams. Well, in this game, they were more disciplined, uh, or maybe the refs just wanted to watch the Super Bowl, and only one penalty is called, uh, or one, I should say only one power play is actually handed out, and, and, and Detroit's able to to handle that, and ultimately that just led them completely dominate uh, again at 5-on-5, five five. and so now you're looking at a team that, you know, they had a good game against Tampa, they had a couple good games against Florida, and they're starting to put together a handful of good games here, and so it's kind of a shame that it's been overshadowed somewhat uh, by that Mantha scratch. Your man, uh, Troy Stetcher, had what I thought was his best game as a Red Wing. He makes two high-level plays, one uh, that sets up a Mark Stahl net front goal. Uh, I don't know who had that on their Red Wings bingo card for 2021. And another uh, on a really nice feed to Giovanni Smith that ends up a rebound that Robbie Fabry taps in easily. Uh, he has another very nice game. Smith's Gordie Howe hat-trick, I think, might be the highlight of the season for in a lot of ways for the Red Wings, just because it's the first time that one of these young players has really had a, a true kind of statement game. I mean, uh, it, it wasn't just the fight for Smith that, that, that evidenced this, but his ability to both contribute on offense and play this physical game and give this physical element that, frankly, on, on a lot of nights, other than maybe Adam Ernie and, and, uh, and some of the defensemen, um, I don't know that how often they really have that high-level physical element to their game, and he's bringing it in addition to offense. Now four points in six games for him. Um, you know, is this an emerging story that we need to be monitoring pretty closely here? Yeah, it's he's a guy who has taken the most uh, advantage of the opportunity he's been given. He's not playing a ton of minutes, playing just over ten minutes a game, but sure enough, he's finding himself on the score sheet. I mean, four point six games uh, had a big big game against Florida. I mean, I thought he looked very much in place. Uh, I mean, number one, uh, very smartly uh, just being in position for where he needed to be in order to score not only his goal, but then uh, on the play by Stetcher to find him in the slot. I mean, it was a great shot by Smith. And and again, it's a good shot, generates a nice rebound and, and easy enough goal for Fabry to just tap in right there. I thought he's looked you know, incredibly, incredibly smart and very much belongs uh, with this team kind of in the long term. And, you know, kind of going back to some of the points we talked about earlier, I think part of what really appeals to you when you watch Smith is the effort is observable. He's hitting guys. He's in on the forecheck. He's breaking up plays. It's it's very easy to see that that physicality from him. And then, you know, one of the big knocks on him in juniors was the guy just took way too many penalties. I believe he led the OHL in penalty minutes two years in a row. But in fact, this time in this game, he actually smartly is able to engage Aaron Ekblad in a fight. And when he comes out of the game, he's actually taking Aaron Ekblad out with him for five minutes in the third period. I mean, that's a big, uh, you know, loss for, for Florida. And so all in all, I mean, I thought he played just a really solid game. And and so I think one of the questions that got posed to me, and, and Max, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Someone asked, did we just find another another Tyler Bertuzzi? Uh, I don't think so, personally. But you know, I, I don't think <laughs> I don't think you need to hold that high of a standard to someone to say you found a, a good player. Any player you find, any NHL player you find in the second round of the draft uh, is generally a win. You know, based on on the averages that you know you're going to find. If you get an NHL player out of the second round of a draft, you're probably pretty happy and was smith the same uh draft as heronic in the second round there yeah 2016 so that might mean they found two there and that is pretty important um I, I don't personally see smith on quite the same level that i see bertuzzi just because i think bertuzzi's offense is is a, at a higher level you know i i think smith does have good hands uh, i think i would take bertuzzi in traffic over smith uh, i think i would take um bertuzzi's uh overall kind of you know, 200 foot game ability to kind of win these battles in a more skilled way. Although I do think again, Smith has good skill. I just would put it kind of a, a cut below where I think Bertuzzi's at, but that doesn't mean I don't think he can be a contributor. And, 
I think I had it. And I don't know when the last time I ranked uh, Red Wings prospects was, but I had Smith high enough that I was taking quite a bit of heat for it, if I remember correctly. Yeah, you've probably taken a fair enough, a fair bit of heat from me for it because I, I'll probably admit Giovanni Smith's. Now, granted, it's still very early for me to say this, so um, you know, take this with a grain of salt. But he may be the guy I end up being most wrong about. Uh, you know, when I watched him in the OHL, you could tell he had uh, some offensive skills, some traits, but he was a guy that was just far more interested in in mucking it up. You know, getting into scrums. I mean. Uh, yeah, I'm not kidding. In in 2015-2016, so his draft year, he leads the OHL with 146 penalty minutes in 65 games. I mean, it's more than a penalty a game. And then follows it up in 16-17 with 139 penalty minutes in 64 games. Leads the league both years in that. Um, and ultimately take took him off the ice so he couldn't be as effective uh, you know, for Guelph, albeit it was a, a pretty bad Guelph team. Uh, that he was playing for so I just never really saw the potential and then you know he gets to the AHL level and you know he's played 100 games in the AHL and scored 15 goals again if you're contrasting him to Tyler Bertuzzi you know Bertuzzi played uh, a fair bit more games than down in, in in Grand Rapids played over 100 games in Grand Rapids and uh, scored 32 goals a kind of a 0.6 per game uh, player uh, basically double what Giovanni Smith had been so I didn't really see it but as you're seeing him kind of smartly pick his spots, uh, being aggressive on the forecheck, being in the right positions, he's showing some of those flashes that that made him a second-round draft pick. And uh, honestly, it looks like you might have some solid bottom six depth there. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about his smarts, and, and I think of that play where he he's coming in, and I think he was with maybe Larkin and Zadina. I don't know who the other four was, but Zadina was definitely one because Smith almost delays and – he runs like a little, uh, I guess it's kind of a curl high in the ozone to wait for Zadina to come into the play and, and enter the zone. And then he hits Zadina for a really, really good chance uh, in the slot. That was the other day, just a couple games ago. And that's a high level play. Like it, it's a play that he could not have seen when he first got the puck. And he had the the forethought to, to be patient, take a beat, use my body to know that nobody can come knock me off the puck this easily and buy myself a little time and find a play in the slot. It, it's the kind of thing that you really like to see and I think is evidence of his growth. So just to go back, this was my uh, January 2020 ranking of the prospects. I put Smith sixth. And, and frankly, as I look at it, I've got him higher than, and this was true then too, I've got him higher than guys who I think have more upside. I've got, her high, I've got him higher than uh, Albert Johansson. I've got him higher than... Anti to Amisto, I've got him higher than Robert Master Simone. All of I mean, Simone, Master Simone might be kind of similar in this way, but you know the the difference at that time was number one, he's already there, and, and at a young age, he's demonstrating that he can get there. He uh, certainly the Red Wings are not a super deep team, and so that has to weigh into things too. But you know, he made real strides. I I was not real sold on on what he was going to be as a prospect in 2018-19, his first pro season when I covered. Him and he made tremendous strides. And whenever you see a prospect do that, that has to answer a lot of kind of doubts that you have because one of the big concerns you have about prospects in general is yes, they might look good at level A, but how are they going to translate to level B? And if it if uh, if that takes some time, like you know, what are they able to do? And, and ultimately, where you want to get to is the NHL. And so seeing Smith struggle going from the OHL to AHL was a concern. But then when he adapted and, and really became a, a difference maker at the AHL level, uh, I think it actually answers two questions, not just whether he can be a difference maker at the AHL level, but whether he's able to come into a situation where he struggles and improve and improve in relatively short order. And you know, at that time last year, that's one of the things that I think made me want to put Smith um, – look, what I, what I think is a, is a perfectly fair – contention that it was it was high but that's why I wanted to do it is, is you answer those questions and you get yourself to the NHL in that quick a time that tells me you're someone who knows how to adapt and knows how to grow their game yeah exactly and I think kind of to close out my thoughts on Smith you know Eric Franey the uh, the Wings PA uh, announcer now in the context of me talking about Mantha also made a very poignant statement that uh, basically fans of, of rebuilding teams tend to very much overvalue the player's on their teams because they see a void or a gap between, you know, some guys and then they're the, the guys that are basically left. So, you know, as good as Giovanni Smith has looked, 
I think it's important to remember that, you know, what we just talked about was he was competent with the puck on his stick and was able to make a puck possession play. Uh, to sort of kind of go back to that question of is he the next Tyler Bertuzzi, I think there's a sizable gap between the two. I agree. Um, and you're, you're talking about maybe a guy who's a good fourth liner on a contending team. I think that's the kind of skill level um, that you see in Giovanni Smith. Uh, he's not a guy you probably want to have on your power play unit, um, but he is a guy that can bring – uh, some of that additional talent. He's not in that Tom Wilson, Tyler Bertuzzi mold. That That's not Giovanni Smith's game. He doesn't have that kind of upside. But he does have that solid, I can play on your fourth line, I can play on your third line. You know, maybe I could even play some penalty kill minutes for you. Um, be a guy that can get you, you know, uh, 10, 15 goals a season, and, and you're happy with that from the bottom six. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So here's here's something for you. Last year, I did an exercise where I pulled a bunch of prospect experts and asked them for um, kind of comparisons, I guess, uh, for, for these. NH- I mean, not I guess. That's what I asked for, for NHL comparisons for, for all these prospects of what they might become. And Craig Buttons was a Brendan Lemieux type, and he also mentioned Lawson Krause. Okay, great. I mean, I I, I think that's a, a better comp than, than a Tyler Bertuzzi. And, and, and I get why Bertuzzi comes up, because he comes up in, in the context of a player who is smart, is skilled, and is tough enough to to um, bring that game to the NHL level. I just think it's at a higher level for Bertuzzi. And I think Bertuzzi, we've had this conversation before, I think Bertuzzi is a guy who can play at literally anywhere in your top nine. He has proven he can play with your two best offensive players on line one. I think that's a not unreasonable outcome for him, um, even as this rebuild goes on, because you want to be able to do that. You don't want to have to put your three most skilled players together um, all on the top line, if you can avoid it, you want to be able to have a guy like Bertuzzi who can still get the most out of your skilled players. That's super valuable. I think Giovanni Smith is a bottom six player, and I think he's likely a fourth line player. But the important thing is he's looking like he can be a fourth line player who's not just a checking player. He's a player who, when he gets the puck on the forecheck, he can actually make something happen with it. He will get to the front of the net and not just get there, but he will finish a play there, right? He will, as he enters the zone, be able to make a, a smart uh, delay play and set up a, a chance in the slot rather than just dump it. These are all signs, and I'm not saying it's a stone-cold lock, but they're all signs that he can be a fourth-line player who does more than just uh, your typical fourth-line, you know, check this box and you can be a checking-line player kind of thing. Which, again, I don't want to oversimplify. is also difficult in its own way, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, the Craig Button comps are good. I think Lawson Krauss is a little tough. I mean, Lawson Krauss was, you know, first-round pick. Uh, was ex- hopefully expected to be a lot more than what he was. I think for me, I'll throw it back to kind of an older Red Wings draft pick in Dallas Drake. Uh, so, you know, the Wings took Dallas Drake back in the sixth round, 1989, uh, career third or fourth liner. But man, oh man, he carved a career out for himself. He got to a thousand games and ultimately ended up coming to Detroit in 07 08 and winning a Stanley Cup with them, you know, at the end of his career. But he was a guy very solidly between 10 and 20 goals. Uh, usually around 25, 30 points, was going to be the physical presence, heavy four-checker, you know, played that 13 to 15 minutes a night. He was he was that guy. And, and Giovanni Smith's game reminds me a lot of that Dallas Drake game. Maybe Giovanni Smith's got a touch more offensive skill than, than Dallas Drake, but I think that's kind of the Red Wings-specific comparison that I would look at. He doesn't have the elite scoring talent that Darren McCarty had, that Kirk Multy had, that a lot of those grind line guys had. So, don't don't start putting him in that bucket. Those guys, you know, Kirk Malty was a 50-goal scorer in juniors. Like, people forget that. He just came to Detroit and was playing on the third line. Ronnie Smith was not that. Darren McCarty was a much better shooter than than uh, Smith as well and even played on the first line at times uh, in, in the early 90s. So I think maybe more of a Dallas straight type comparison fits, but that's still a very valuable player. And again, a lot of this is coming off of a pretty small sample of just these last, you know, three, four games that Smith has played. But again, that's 
most of his sample for the season. And, and so after an, after an off season, um, that's I think fairly relevant. And and I'm going to be cautious with it. I'm not I'm not even ready to say that he's a full time NHL player. It's totally conceivable that he could. Uh, end up back in the AHL for some time or or certainly on the taxi squad for some time this season, partly because as he's in right now, the, one of the players you just mentioned, Tyler Bertuzzi and Mantha, obviously, were not in the lineup. And so uh, it's conceivable to me that, that he could uh, at some point see some more time in Grand Rapids, and that would obviously allow him to play with the puck more, certainly just play more in general and continue to hone those skills. But I just continue to be more and more confident that this is a player who can stick in the NHL for for at least a period of time um, as the Red Wings get through this and, and may even be able to stick beyond that. Yeah, so basically moral of the story for all of you listening, Giovanni Smith will be on the taxi squad and will not play in the Red Wings next game. As Max and I, right before the last series of games, said we were very impressed with Tyra Hirose and he was going to stay up in the lineup and then <laughs> has subsequently gone down to the taxi squad. So at this point, we basically sealed Giovanni's fate and I'm sorry. Didn't Hiroshi play the next game or did he not? I don't. I thought he went right down to the taxi squad and didn't end up playing the next game. Maybe maybe he played one more and then went down. Yeah, the taxi I think he played squad, one so. more and then went down because I think we were predicting who was going to stay and I think we predicted Hiroshi and they sent Rasmussen and Smith. But nonetheless, we were still wrong. Big picture. <laughs> and, and and sorry, Giovanni, we basically sealed your fate here. Yeah, we have. Um, hey, since you brought up Mantha, you know, I know we. Did. We did a ton of time on this already, but I just realized, I don't know that we really talked about the decision to to do this. My, I guess like just for two minutes here, uh, what do you think of the decision to scratch him? Because we spent a lot of time talking about what it does and doesn't mean about Mantha, but was this the right call for, from Blash? I mentioned the confidence thing. Certainly, I don't think getting scratched fixes his confidence. What do you think about the decision by Blashwell to scratch Mantha for the last game? I, you know, I go back and forth on this because I think – Across the board with hockey coaches, the number one way for hockey coaches to really communicate messages to players is via almost a punishment mechanism. And that's typically withholding ice time, uh, scratching them from a game, doing bag skates at practice. Uh, You know, the psychology of that to me as someone in medicine uh, just seems to bother me. I think there are other ways you can motivate people without having it be a, a quote-unquote punishment-type style. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, if you have found a way that this guy tends to respond and you, you know, that's what works, then I, by all means, go for it and do it. We have no idea if other conventional, you know, discussions or other motivating tactics were used and now that's where they've ended up. But to me, I, I kind of like the ideas of trying other, you know, non-punishment directed things uh, to try and motivate a player. But that being said, um, if this is what you think works for this player as a coach and a manager of people um, and your people, then, yeah, I mean, that that's going to be the right decision then. I think that's fair. I uh I'm split. I mean, I, I think coaches have so few options at their disposal that, like you said, this is the one that, that tends to um, be the be the one they go with. And I have a hard time faulting a coach for doing that. Um, I'm just skeptical. And I'm frankly, I'm skeptical that um, this is something that can change in, in one game. Like, I don't expect all the uh, all of Anthony Mantha's uh, early season stuff to be to just go away in, in one, you know, one game later, like if he comes back into the lineup tomorrow night, I still expect there'll be some shifts where, you know, he's still kind of, you can see him kind of searching for it to, to get fully into gear. And I think it's just something that takes time and it maybe comes and goes a little bit. And I, you know, I, I think that's reasonable to expect from someone. Um, I also think it, you know, so from that standpoint, I guess I would say, I don't know that it actually solves the problem. And so maybe there's that, but at the end of the day, Jeff Blaschel has, two or three options, maybe, I guess. I don't even know what the other options are just besides letting it wait and and sitting him. I guess you could start him and then play the sporadic benching game, but that to me almost seems like more head games than anything, or not, not that that's intended to be that way, but it, it can have that outcome. And so um, I, I think if Manta is struggling with confidence and you know the fact that Manta mentioned that himself, that, that he needed to build some confidence or, or was looking to build some confidence a couple weeks ago, that's something I'm certainly um, curious about. I don't know if it solves it, but I don't have a huge problem with it, I guess, either. 
So you want a totally extreme example here of what I'm talking about? I because I, I can't always. Uh, I can't not give like just a rational, normal example. I'm going to give the most extreme example that doesn't really apply uh, entirely. But what, let's throw it back to the 72 and 10 Bulls. Everyone watched the Last Dance, and and hearing Dennis Rodman talk about how Phil Jackson was able to connect and manage him. Um, is something that's kind of stuck with me when you think about the coach and player relationship. You know, Rodman always talked about that, you know, the harder people tried to come down and discipline him, the harder he struggled, you know, the harder he became for him to really go out there, play the game that the, the way he wanted to play. And it was really a guy like Chuck Daly in Detroit and Phil Jackson uh, for Chicago. Those were the guys who were able to actually connect with him, find what worked for him, find what motivated for him you know, recognize what he needed to allow them to get the best out of him. I'm not saying that Anthony Mantha has the same mental state as Dennis Rodman, but to me, there are other mechanisms for motivating and connecting with people other than discipline. And I think sometimes you have people that respond well to it. Sometimes you have people that don't. But if you just continually fall back to the one, you know, one tool in your bag of tricks, uh, I think it just ends up doing more damage in the long run. I'm not saying that that's the case, but know what he responds to, what their relationship's like or anything like that. Uh, but just saying that the, the overall psychology of just using discipline as your only tool to me doesn't make a lot of sense. We also don't know what else he's tried because right. we're not in that locker room and, and this year less so than ever. I mean, this is something that I, that frustrates me to no end this year that I fully understand the reason for, but makes my job about 12 times harder when, when people want to ask me something um, that, that you do need to be around someone on a more personal level, at least, you know, one-on-one -on -one and not over a, a faceless Zoom call where even, even if your face is on it, it's either half covered by a mask or you're in front of 15 people and cameras, you just don't get those kind of insights. And, and so that's something that we're certainly going to lack in this situation and others we don't know what else Blashell has tried up until this point. Certainly, this is not a new thing. This is something they've been going, going, uh, you know, trying to, to get out of him for not just this whole season, but uh, seasons in the past too. So, um, in my opinion, I, I just think it's, uh, you know, I, I think it's fair to question whether it's the right way, but I don't know that I can seriously criticize it in this case because. I just don't know what else was, was tried and, and I don't have the context to, to fault it. And it's, it's a common enough thing uh, to scratch a player, even if, you know, I think it is a little rare that it's someone of, of Mantha's caliber and, and experience that um, I have a hard time go, really, I guess, getting fired up about it, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I think what you said, the, the key is we don't have enough information, Right. We just don't have enough and information. It's difficult and it's frustrating so. too. And I, I certainly realize people's frustrations about it. Again, I promise I'm as frustrated about that as you, but there's not a whole lot that can be done in, in this specific instance about yep, that. Exactly. All right, let's go to the questions because I saw a ton of very good ones today. So kudos to everyone who responded to Prashant's uh, poll, which I thought were outstanding. Um, let's start with, let's start with uh, Peter Kletcha, who says, would love to hear a detailed reaction to Scott Wheeler's breakdown of the Red Wings prospect pool. And although he does actually just want an entire episode about that, uh, so maybe we can circle back on that part at some point. But if you want to give an overall uh, take on it, that's fine too. But the more specific question, he wants to know, should Red Wings fans be giving up on Philip Larson, who is having another tough season uh, so far this year? Uh, I think I'll start with a specific question of Philip Larson. And, and for me, the answer is no. I mean, there's no reason to give up on the guy uh you know, as of now, like we've said, goalies are, you know, fickle players. It can sometimes take years for development to really sort itself out. Uh, you know, throw it back to Jordan Bennington. Jordan Bennington with St. Louis, was, he was drafted in 2011. He played as a rookie in 2019. I mean, it's like an eight years out from his draft before he's finally playing at the NHL level, and lo and behold, he leads him to a Stanley Cup. I'm not saying that Philip Larson will now subsequently lead the Red Wings to a Stanley Cup eight years from his draft year. But what I am saying is sometimes goalie development does take some time. There are sometimes kinks or mechanisms that need to be worked out. Obviously, the pandemic uh, makes it all that much harder for Red Wings, you know, scouts or, or um, personnel to work with him. And so he's a little bit more kind of left up to the, the team personnel that he's with over, um, you know, in Sweden. But, you know, you're, you're certainly discouraged that his stats are not where – 
you want them to be after such a promising start to his career in the NCAA. But, you know, show patience. You've got him under contract and, and just see what happens. Uh, I think it depends on the definition of give up here. Um, to your point, you know, what is it? What does give up mean? Because, you know, certainly people have their own tracks and, and all that. But and, you know, what is what does a fan giving up on Phil Porter mean? For a team, giving up on him would mean cutting ties. And I don't think that's necessarily necessary at this point. Although uh, I do believe his ELC is up relatively soon. Um, and so then there is that question. But if, in terms of having hopes or expectations for Philip Larson? Absolutely. Have zero. I, I don't have, I don't see any reason that, that, uh, you know, in the last two years to think that Philip Larson's going to make the NHL. And so when you go that long without providing something like that, I don't have any expectation that he will make it. Yeah. I think that's fair. That fair? I mean, yeah, I think it's totally fair to ha- have your default be this guy is not going to make the NHL. In fact, that's my default for every player that's ever been drafted by the Red Wings. So, <laughs> You can see the cynicism in me right there. Uh, and obviously, the further you get out with some of these guys, that drops even, the likelihood of them making it drops even lower and lower. However, I will say the one position group that still sometimes makes it even further out than uh, the other guys is the goaltender. And so uh, he's certainly not the highest ranked goaltender in Detroit's prospect group for me. And, and Detroit's prospect group as a goalie is quite thin already. Um, you know, he's maybe third now on my list of, of who Detroit has. So, you know, maybe, but I, I just, I wouldn't just drop him just for the sake of dropping him. Yeah. I mean, put, put, put in the terms that you were just talking about. I don't think there is a goaltender in the Red Wings farm system right now that I expect to make the NHL and he would not be in my top three goaltenders in the Red Wings farm system. Yeah. So agree. Take from that what you will. Uh, this one I think is very interesting. Uh, Dom asks, is it not Dom Lushijan? Shout out to Dom. But a different Dom says, is it ethical for the Red Wings to keep demoting ELC players to the taxi squad every off day so they don't have to pay them their full salary? Seems cap circumvent-like. Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And honestly, really uh, well-timed because I only just realized it uh, today when a a friend of mine pointed it out that the guys who are on two-way contracts, meaning they have an AHL salary and an NHL salary, um, are paid their AHL salary while they're on uh, the taxi squad list. And so in Giovanni Smith's case, he's got a $700,000 base salary in the NHL, but $67,500 in the AHL. And so basically the daily difference for him is about $3,400 a day. Um, obviously, the means that they're going by is they're, they're, they're trying to move these guys down to the taxi squad who are waivers exempt so that when the cap calculates on a daily basis, you, you can maybe accrue a small amount of cap given that the season's been shortened and the amount you accrue has been expanded. But yeah, it's kind of it's kind of stinks that that's the the byproduct of that is you're seeing a guy lose thirty four hundred dollars a day. Yeah, I think it's unethical from that standpoint. I don't, I don't give a shit about the salary cap. Like cap circumvent all you want. Every team in the league does it. Whatever. That there's no ethics involved in the salary cap because the salary cap is in itself unethical. Um, but yeah, doing this taxi squad thing to avoid paying players. I mean, I, I think they're doing it for salary cap reasons more than kind of literally paying players, although it could be both. It is times are hard right now. Um, I do think it's unethical. I mean, this is a guy who, uh, and, and these guys have been up and down. So I guess we kind of got to be careful. They haven't been in every game. Um, but you know, the guy has a game like that. He gets a Gordie Howe hat trick. He scores a, what I think was the game winning goal. And he's on the taxi squad the next day. I mean, if he doesn't play the next game and he stays in the taxi squad, I guess you can maybe make a case for it. Um, but I think it is not cool to do this. I, I think it's uh, I think it's bad employment practice. And I, I'm sure there's a lot of teams all over the league doing it. I think I saw someone tweet about how many um, up-down transactions there have already been this year compared to years prior. I don't have it in front of me or else I'd read it to you. But it was jarring. It's been a very common thing this year for, for teams to send players up and down. But I do have an issue with that just from a – you know, as an employee, I, I, I feel that uh, if one of my employers did this to me and, and messed with my salary to the degree that the difference of AHL and NHL salaries are, uh, I would be extremely upset. And I do think it's uh, it's unethical. Yeah. All right. Uh, Evan Lotti says delayed or dual draft, hypothetically good or bad for the Red Wings. Uh, this obviously in reference to multiple reports over the last couple of weeks. But I think I've seen it most fleshed out by Elliot Friedman uh, from Sportsnet. 
uh, about the possibility of the Red Wings doing, or not the Red Wings, the NHL delaying its draft by a whole year to 2022. Um, Iserman in the past has hinted, and I asked him at, at his last availability about scouting this draft class, and he mentioned the idea of potentially moving the date of the draft um, as something that might be worth exploring because of the challenges scouting this draft class. Uh, the Swedish Junior Leagues, I believe, their season's already done. That already ended. Uh, yep. the, the Canadian Hockey League, it has only barely begun, and that's really only in Quebec. It won't get started yet for a little bit here. Um, and it's going to be very limited viewings against potentially for some teams, you know, with border issues. I, I believe it's the case that the U.S. teams are only able to play each other unless they go into Canada. Is that right? Like, and like have that as their home base for the year? Yeah, yeah, I believe that's the case. Uh, and then you've got, you know, college teams that are just playing within their conference, which isn't so ridiculous. Those are probably the guys that are in, in, in the best shape. And fortunately for the Red Wings, they've got um, three of them right in their backyard. But that's a very small portion of the draft and really only applies to round, you know, one-ish. Um, so I think it's a huge problem. Chris Draper, who is, I think, based in the U.S., like, you imagine, like, he will have not seen any of these European prospects in their draft year. He may not have seen, depending on how he proceeds from here, uh, any of the CHL prospects in their draft year. I mean, it's possible he could go in, I guess, and quarantine and figure it out. But you get into dicey situations there. Uh, delayed dual draft, hypothetically good or bad for the Red Wings, to go back to Evan's question. Uh, I think it's good in the sense that you're going to have the opportunity to see all of these guys. You want to make an informed decision with arguably a, a player that's going to be a part of your organization for eight years uh, after you draft them. I mean, you know, to do it on video scouting alone or not even any scouting because they weren't playing is certainly not ideal for these guys. And yes, you have some information that you can use, you know, from their draft minus one years and and stuff like that to maybe make a little bit more of an informed decision. But truth be told, the amount of these players gain in just a season is is dramatic. And, I mean, you look at a guy like Jack Quinn from last year who goes from, you know, hardly scoring at all to being a 50-goal scorer and, and being a top 10, you know, pick in the, in the draft uh, for Buffalo. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that you're missing out on seeing this year. So, you know, it would be very interesting to have an 18-year-old draft and a 19-year-old draft. However, you know, I think at that point you're going to start stretching these scouting departments um, to be able to scout basically two sets of players and two sets of drafts. I think the teams that have the most robust scouting departments are the ones that are going to be able to take the most advantage of it. But at a bare minimum, I think it's better than drafting blind this year. Yeah, I mean, I first of all, I think the fact that Steve Eisenman is – he hasn't – publicly advocated for the 2022 thing, but he advocated pushing it back, which I think tells you where he thinks or what, what he thinks would be best for the Red Wings. Like I think a delayed draft is, is something that he thinks would be good for the Red Wings. And that obviously counts for a lot. He's the guy who for all intents and purposes is the Red Wings in, in this sense represents the Red Wings. Um, obviously it'd be terrible for us. You and me like <laughs> going on a year that what, one of the many years in this Red Wings rebuild that is more about the draft than anything else uh, it's going to be the shortest season that we ever cover, hopefully, knock on wood, um, on this podcast. And to have to deal with it uh, with no draft stuff uh, forthcoming would be really bad for us. So from that standpoint, uh, I would be very nervous about it. But I also think it, for the Red Wings, like not just in terms of the advanced viewings of guys, like how often I, I, I'm very curious how much more accurate a 19 year old draft would be. And, and it's not the perfect measure because you'd have less, uh, you know, age 18 or, or, or U18 data on guys than you've ever had in the past. But, you know, I, I think if, if you're someone who's really into the second guessing and the redrafting and, and you're someone who's really big into asking why the Red Wings didn't draft Brock Besser or Quinn Hughes or any of these players that people are always fired up about, Trevor Zegras, uh, you should like this proposal because it gives you a better chance to have, uh, you know, more years before you're making this decision. The reason that I think this could be really sneaky interesting is that the idea of doing them one week apart puts in play something that we have never seen before. And obviously we've never seen this kind of thing before. Um, the Red Wings potential ability to package draft picks in one draft and move them for draft picks in another draft that happen within a week of each other. For example, if you know the lottery orders of both drafts, and of course you presumably would leading up to this, let's say the Red Wings get the first pick this year and they end up, or the second pick or the third pick, and they end up with the fifth pick or the sixth pick or the fourth pick or whatever. 
2022. But you really want Shane Wright, or you really want Brad Lambert, or you really want Rucker McGroarty. You could talk about packaging picks from 2021, and maybe you've got someone who really wants Owen Power, and, and you can make a move with with a pick in one draft trying to get to the next one. Now, I, I have a feeling that 2022 picks are going to be uh, cost a premium, but if you're the Red Wings and and you have the ability that, that you're able to to package picks in that short a span, all of a sudden you could be dealing with uh, you know two first-round picks and, what, four or five at least – uh, second round picks that that take place over a span of a week, which I think always makes them more appealing uh, when it gets to draft time. I guess the Red Wings do only have one second rounder right now in 2022, so four seconds. But you get a much broader pool that if you want to try to make a move up in one of those two drafts, it, it's an unprecedented level of, of workability there. Yeah, you know, on the flip side, it may make teams less likely to part with those picks early and you may be yes. less likely to get a scenario like Ottawa had with the, the Eric Carlson deal with the San Jose. So basically, it's going to actually negate your ability to take advantage of kind of some of the random variance that happens with, you know, teams making the playoffs one year and then bottoming out the next year. You know, for example, had a team targeted Vancouver's 2021 first round pick, you would be looking great. But Vancouver may have been willing to part with that. And now you're like, oh, shoot, we could have had that. And so that's the... That's the aspect that I think you're going to lose, which means that making those deals and uh, and doing those things, you're going to end up paying more of a, a fair value or premium cost as opposed to you know being able to sneak away and potentially land an extra lottery pick in a year. Yeah, I mean I, it's possible. I I just I wouldn't be that first round picks always come at a premium, and I I think maybe you see teams a little less you know, antsy to get rid of theirs if they know they are going to get kind of that second crack at, at scouting a class. But uh, to me, I think the ability to to have your own scouts have the full year scouting them probably outweighs it. And, and ultimately the ability to, it's still going to be the case that if you're sitting at four and you really think you can get up to one, if you package four and two in 2021, uh, which again, will take place over the course of a week for number one and Shane Wright. That's a very, very bold decision, but it's, possible that you could make that work yeah i mean you certainly could um you know the challenge the even funnier challenge would be the 2022 draft is so much better than the 2021 draft that the sixth pick in the 2022 draft is more valuable than the third pick you know in the 2021 totally draft, possible arguably. totally yeah. possible and so it'll be even more fun to see how teams value picks across those two drafts if they're if they're literally drafting them a week apart We'll close on this from Taylor Baird. If you could describe every team in the Central Division as a whiskey or bourbon, what would each be and why? I have uh, no expertise here, so I defer the floor to you. Oh, man. I mean, this is this is definitely a fun question because uh, the Central Division has lots of very bad teams, some okay teams. Uh, you know, I think for me, you have to start with the Red Wings. The bourbon that I think... Uh, is just absolutely not good whatsoever in any capacity is Jefferson's Ocean. And so uh, I have not been able to wrap my hand around a single thing from that distillery. And so I'm going to go ahead and, uh, you know, label the Red Wings in that there. I think uh, there are some redeeming qualities of the Detroit team that maybe makes it not a perfect fit. But, uh, you know, nonetheless, I think uh, Jefferson's probably fits there. You know, Nashville is kind of the next team there. Nashville's okay. You know, there's some there's some nice things about them. Uh, you know, I think they're kind of basic, though. I'll label them as with a wild turkey rare breed. I think that's a nice nice bottle. Has some good qualities, things like that. Dallas is a lot of flash, but, uh, you know, to me, again, I, I kind of worry about them being able to hold up. So for those of you that have ever had, you know, a bottle of Elmer T. Lee, it's a very difficult bottle to find. Sometimes people put it on secondary markets for like 100 bucks or 200 bucks. Retails at thirty nine bucks. It's worth thirty nine bucks, uh, but there's a lot of flash and flair that uh, you know drives that thing way way up. I think that's what you see in Dallas, Columbus. Super boring, super boring team. I think they're just your standard Woodford Reserve. Not a whole lot that goes into that. Sorry, Allison Lucan, if you're listening to that. That's all I can really think about with you know Columbus. Chicago is another team that I would love to pair with Jefferson's Ocean just because, again, I don't really see anything of redeeming quality there. Uh, you know, Florida is a very weird team. Um, they don't make a lot of sense to me. There's like some funky notes to it. 
Um, if anyone's been able to try the, the Thomas Moore uh, Cabernet Sauvignon finish, it's just like a, there's a lot of weird funk to it. And then there's just this overriding smell that comes through. And I just kind of sit there and I go, you know what? I don't really like this, but uh, I'm going to kind of go with that. Carolina and Tampa are obviously the class. I think for me, Tampa is a, is a bottle of Blanton's. I think nothing really beats a bottle of Blanton's for me when you're talking about a value perspective. And then I think Carolina is kind of like an old Weller Antique 107, just a, another really nice bottle in that range. Just really, really good stuff to watch. So there's my uh, quick rundown of, of bourbon matching to Central Division teams. If you ever need a proof Prashant was more worldly than me, other than like two episodes ago when we talked about how I've never left the continent, uh, there it was. I like Bullet. <laughs> uh, hey, nothing wrong with Bullet. It's a fine bottle. I was just waiting for you to mention one that it actually had. I do have uh, a bottle of Woodford Reserve that I found on sale downstairs, but uh, hadn't heard of most of them. So there you go, though. Fair Hope that enough. answers your question, Taylor. <laughs> All right, uh, that's going to do it for us. Uh, Thanks for sticking with us. And everybody hang in there. I know tensions are extremely high right now. Uh, It's going to be a slog of a season. And and so I I have uh, all the patience in the world for you guys. I hope that you will uh, will have some patience uh, with with us as we uh, try to navigate all this with you. And and we'll certainly keep doing that. We'll be back at you later this week. Everybody uh, stay healthy and take care.